Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture today is from the Acts of the Apostle, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which you'll find in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles at page 113 or on the screen. Please join me for a prayer of illumination. Father, we celebrate the gifts that you have given us. We celebrate the fact that you are with us in each moment that we serve you. And we pray that we might learn today from these apostles who learned this very early in their experience. Amen. Acts 2, verse 42. Those who accepted Peter's message and were baptized on the day of Pentecost devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because of many signs and wonders that were done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the preeds proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning again to all of you. God bless you on this Mother's Day. Thank you for joining us in worship in person. Thank you for joining us in worship online. I want you to know that over the next seven Sundays, we will be engaging in an important teaching series that is timely and has great significance for the life of our church. The teaching series is called Created for Community, Attachment and Spiritual Formation. Let me say that again. It's a mouthful. Created for community, attachment, and spiritual formation. And every one of those words have profound significance for who we are. And we'll, we'll unpack this over the next few Sundays. What I want to do this morning, though, is kind of share three what I call movements with you. Three movements with you. The first one is to look at the problem. The second one is to look at what might be a solution. And the third one is to actually have you this morning engage in a very practical activity slash response. So let's just think about the problem here this morning. And I know, I know that the pandemic gets blamed for an assortment of crimes against humanity, against society, against the church, against the American dream. But what I want to talk to you about this morning, this problem that I want to identify for you this morning, 
we can't blame this one on the pandemic. Because you see, community fragmentation, loneliness, tribalism, loss of meaningful relationships with one another, these things were happening long before March of 2020. I remember just my own little world, my own little reading, 2000, the year 2000, the author, professor of public policy, Robert Putnam, was ringing the alarm bell in this book that he wrote called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Some of you may have heard of that book. Some of you may have read it. It's a big one. I didn't even read all of it. I read most of it. And one of his famous observations in the book concerns bowling. And he said in the book that most Americans, more Americans than ever, are bowling. But whereas they used to bowl in clubs and in leagues and in groups, they're now bowling alone. But it's not just in bowling. He drew on this ocean of data to show how our behavior as Americans, it's changing. We're becoming disconnected from one another. And you see it in the number of people who participate in parent-teacher associations. You see it in the number of people who sign up for library cards and actually visit the library. You see it in our local congregations. Many of them all across our land are closing as people turn away from the church, from political parties, from a variety of community groups. They're disintegrating. And instead, people are isolated and they're going it alone. And then he says this, and this is really the heart and soul of his book. He says that the price for this detachment and I want you to hear this, it's the loss of social capital. Social capital, what is that? It describes the power. It describes the resources that people in community and in groups can leverage to move mountains, to achieve goals, to solve problems, and to sustain a movement. And he then cites four pivotal reasons for this loss of social capital. He talks about the pressures of time and money. He talks about mobility and sprawl. Now you have to understand, this is somewhere between 1995 and 2000 that he's reflecting on. Mobility and sprawl. He mentions television. And then he mentions generational differences. Now remember, 2000, the year 2000, 22 years ago. And my question to you is, are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Are we about the same? Quick thumbs up, are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Do you think we're about the same? Okay, I see a lot of thumbs going this way. So obviously we're losing ground. We're losing ground. And Putnam argues that this this decline in social capital is a trend that we should be paying attention to. Of course, we're paying attention to it. Because here's what he says, the value of social capital is that it helps us to translate our aspirations 
into realities. And it makes the problems that we're trying to fix a little easier because as we come together as a community, we're not tribalized, we're not divided, we're not, we're not in a state of disunity. We're bringing all those resources together. Now, I agree that the pandemic didn't cause much of our breakdown, but it also didn't help us. It ex what it did, it exposed the cracks that we weren't noticing in our body politic. It exposed the cracks in our relationships as families. It exposed the weaknesses that were already in our churches and in our other organizations. And so what I want to do over the next few Sundays, and Pastor Amanda is going to help me with this, we plan to not only describe the problem, it's easy to describe the problem, but we want to propose some ways forward for some, for what some would argue is the glue, the glue that holds society together. So let's just think a little bit about the solution. Because I would argue, and I will wrestle you to the ground on this one, and I think I would win, right? That the tie that binds communities together, the tie that builds social capital, comes from, are you ready for this? It comes from religion. The Latin meaning for the word religion, it means to bind. It means to hold together. And so a vibrant, healthy, religious life functions as a glue, holding or forming individuals and families in social, in moral, in supportive communities. And when those ties, those religious ties begin to wane and fragment and unravel as they're happening now across our land and around the world, our base communities, and what do I mean by our base communities? Our base communities in terms of our personhood, in terms of our families, in terms of our churches, and even what many call a moral compass they begin to disintegrate. And on this Mother's Day, let's never forget, let's never forget on this Mother's Day that the fate of religion in America is inextricably tied to the fate of the family, and the fate of the family is tied to the fate of our communities. In her book, How the West Really Lost God, Cultural critic Mary Eberstadt argues that religion is like a language you can learn, but you learn it only in community. And she says, you can learn it in community, starting with the community of the family. And when both the family and the community become fragmented and they fail, the transmission of faith, the transmission of religion to the next generation becomes far more difficult. You've heard the phrase, it takes a village, right? And all it takes, all it takes is the failure of a single generation to hand down a tradition for that tradition to disappear from the life of a family and in turn, from the life of 
a community. Let me give you a personal example because I think this is so true. And I'm only appreciating it later on in life. I came along, I came along at a time in our nation of Jamaica, and I'm sure this was true for us here in America, when social ties, social capital, communal bonds were, were vibrant. Few people in our community had telephones. Nobody, of course, was texting on social media. But when I got into a fight, and we call it in Jamaica, sculling school, when I played hooky, is what you call it, when I played hooky from school and got involved in shoplifting and other childhood bad behavior, I just couldn't understand how by the time I got home, my mother, my grandmother got wind of what I was doing out there. And by the time I got home, one of them was waiting for me. And they would look at me and say, where were you? And I would say, nowhere. What do you mean nowhere? Then how come I heard? And you fill in the blank. I heard you were running through Mr. So-and-so's yard and you were climbing his tree and stealing his mangoes. Or I heard some people saw you at the beach. Or I heard you were walking on the street. This is a big one. You and your sister were walking on the streets and you should have been in school. Yeah, this is the kind of look I was giving them. Busted. And I couldn't understand back then that what was happening was I was part of a village. I was part of a community, part of a neighborhood that was looking out for one another. And everyone knew their neighbors. And it was this kind of interdependence. It was this kind of accountability that not only held the neighborhoods I grew up in intact, but it actually held my life from spiraling off into some pretty bad things. You fast forward to today, and what do we find? Although social media promises that you're going to have tons of friends and you're going, to, you're going to connect to friends, you're going to be a part of a community, we're still seeing high levels of loneliness. We're still seeing high levels of, of anxiety and sort of a rootlessness within our generation. And whereas we used to depend on each other, we now, we now go it alone. I mean, that is sort of the mantra to be a real American today you kind of do it your way. We have believed the lie. We have believed the lie, friends, that we can make it by ourselves instead of starting with the assumption that we need each other, that we're better together. But instead, we're operating as consumers. I haven't been in a movie theater now going on three years, and so this is before the pandemic. I just hadn't had time to go. But I used to go. And when I would go, I would engage in a little social experiment. I would um, try to count the number of times that people going into the movie theater or were in line or were, you know, buying uh, stuff at the, at the counter to go in. I'm trying to watch to see if we make eye contact. People smile, nod, and hardly anyone does that. And, and I mean, come on. When people go to the movie theater, they're going to sort of fill their entertainment bucket. They're not going there to make friends. When I lived in New York City, and then ever since moving to Chicago, and I get on the train, the Metro, the CTA, the train that took me to Brooklyn, 
And you walk on the train, everyone's looking down. You think they were all monks. You think they're all praying. Back in the day, they were down looking at the newspaper or book. Now they're looking down on, on some kind of device. And the eye contact, the smile, the nod, the small talk, the little social little things that you exhibit when you're part of something, you know, that just doesn't happen on the train. And in the places and the spaces where we live, I've heard so many people confess to me, you know, I've lived on this street for X number of years, and I really don't know the person who lives on the other side of me. I don't know the person who lives on the fence behind me or the person who lives above me, the person beneath me. I really don't know. And even in our churches, when I was out visiting my daughter in, in Houston, we went to a very large church, which will remain nameless. And of course, it's a big church, but you know, you park 10 million miles away, and you're walking, and you're in a bunch of people, you're kind of looking around, trying to, good morning, and everybody's just like straight ahead, business down, boom. The only people who smiled with us, which they're supposed to smile, are the people who were handing us a bulletin and saying, good morning, welcome to. And we sat down beside some folks and we kind of looked over, straight ahead they looked. Looked straight ahead. Service ended, benediction, we're walking out. Again, the big thing now was to get to the car, beat the crowd, get to the restaurant. Even in our churches across the land, we're finding this loss of community, connection, Attendance, attendance, that's a, that's a huge loss for our churches today. Participation, thank you. Thank you, Casey, for what you shared with us. Participation and this interdependence. And you say, well, why? Let me tell you why. Many people see the church as a place to come and to consume. The better the goods and services of that church the greater the chance of attracting people. And you better not have a problem with those goods and services. You better not see a decline in those goods and services because once they begin to decline, the consumers will go to the next thing down the road that has a better gig. And that kind of relationship, I've often railed against it because to me it's no different from being at the movie theater. It's very, very transactional and it's not based on a word that we're going to look at here in a real quick second, the word devotion. Devotion. Our reading this morning, and many of the readings that you will hear us reflect on over the coming Sundays, present a different picture of what binds a church or a community of believers together. And the central verse, the central verse that, that I think sustained that first century base community of Christians in Jerusalem you heard it in verse 44. All who believed were together. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. There are a lot of important words in that little verse. They believed, they were together, they had all things in common. Totally different vision from what you see at a movie theater or being on the train or kind of just going off on your own. In other words, they were bringing togetherness. And what I love about the church, 
And that's why the church is the hope. The church is God's instrument for changing this world. What I love about the church when the church does it the way Jesus wants it to do it is that you can get people from all over the world, of all cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and, and, and wealth and education status together, and they are still together as the body of Christ, holding all things in common, and there aren't too many places in society where you're going to see that happen. And that's why I am bullish on what the local church can do as it relates to making a difference in a society that's increasingly becoming fragmented. These people would bring all their knowledge and their strength and some of their possessions into God's community, and they literally practiced a community of goods sharing. So much so, and this is my theory, so much so that when the ferocious winds of persecution began to blow against the church in Jerusalem, the church did not implode. It actually made them stronger. It made them more dependent on each other and on the Holy Spirit, and they prayed more. And what was supposed to weaken them made them stronger. I love it, though, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God... And when he spoke about his church, he was not saying that the kingdom of God and the church are the same. But he was saying that the church is a visible sign of what God King, God's kingdom should look like on earth. So think about the intro that we just read at the beginning of the service that Hannah led us in. All nations and tribes. And what were they doing? Holding all things in common. They were worshiping. A sign. That's a sign of God's kingdom. And it starts right now. And so when Jesus spoke about the church, he called the church the light of the world. When he spoke about the church, instead of talking about the church in terms of what the church should do, and we here at First Prayers, we're, 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 we're guilty and I will say that guilty, guilty of often talking about what the church should do. What are we going to do? And Jesus, when he talked about the church, didn't start first with, what are you going to do? He said, this is who you are. There's a difference between being and doing. You can do stuff and not be the things you're doing. Man, that's pretty hollow. It's being before doing. It's being before mission. And Jesus calls the church the light of the world, city on a hill. Paul later on referred to the church as this diverse body that we saw just now, this body with many parts, family of God. You see that referenced over and over, a field. We're going to talk about the church as a field. And Jesus often, and Paul talked about it too, branches connected to the vine. This is who we are. And if you don't know who you are, you're not going to know what to do. And so I think the solution then, what's the solution? So again, our solution is to remind us of the power of the community, a community of believers 
who model the way of Jesus. And I would say to you this morning that the most important thing that you and I could ever do is not hold a meeting, it's not raise money, it's not to write mission statements, and don't get me wrong, those things are great. The most important thing that you and I could ever do is to model the way of Jesus, and that is the mission of the church, to make disciples, to raise up little Jesuses who practice the way of Jesus before an unbelieving world. That's the most important thing we could ever do, and it is within the community, within the body of Jesus' church that we begin to do that. And I say to you this morning, what were some, what were some of the practices that the early Christians do, did what were some of those practices? And they were doing it as a minority movement within a majority pagan culture. They were like this little, this little floating island in this vast ocean of paganism. How did they do it? What did they do? And I would offer to you that what made them so irresistible, it was their devotion. And the word devotion at least some of the ways it's used in the New Testament, it means to persist, to persist deliberately, to, to, to persist obstinately in something. Not every now and then. Not just at Easter. Not just when it's convenient. Not just at Christmas. But you are devoted. You are glued. So let's just consider what they were doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we would say they were a learning community. And by the way, all these descriptors are not mine. I, I, I read a lot of this years ago in John Stott's book on the book of Acts. He describes them as a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We don't have time to get into that, but just picture what that would look like. They were committed to learning The second thing they were devoted to, they were obstinately committed to, was the fellowship. They were a loving community. When you fellowship, yes, the cookies are great, but the bigger goal is the engagement one with the other to practice being a loving community. Their devotion to breaking bread. And yes, that was within a context of worship. They were a worshiping community. And yes, in that, concept, in that context, they were eating and they were sharing in the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to reaching out. How do we know that? Because it says that the Lord was adding to their number daily. They were an evangelistic community. And then there was their devotion to prayers. They were a vibrant, spiritually powerful community. So, a total, total sidebar here, because I read these, these things, I try to picture in my mind what it might have looked like, and I said, what did they do with the kids? You know, in the modern church today, people look at kids as problems. We've got to build a whole wing and kind of stuff them over there in the wing so that we, the adults, can just do the adult thing, right, and just worship and just, you know, we don't hear any wiggles, we don't hear any squeals, we hear no little feet pattering around. We say, oh, this is so good. And the minute we hear a kid, we kind of give them that side stare like, you know? I wonder what they did with the kids. I would suggest to you that based on my reading of the New Testament, and maybe Dr. K.K. Yo would agree with me on this, he's a New Testament scholar, 
And these people met as households. They didn't meet in wonderful buildings like these. They met in somebody's house. And the kids were there. And so when a, when, a, when a family got saved, it says the whole household was baptized. You had the mom and dad, the kids, and their servants. The kids were right there with all of their spunk and their spontaneity and their wonder. The kids were part of the community. And we say we want kids to grow up in the faith. It starts right now in the community. And I would ask you, my brothers and sisters, just to ask yourself when you see the faces of some of our kids, and you say, well, do I know that child? Do I know their parents? Do I know that child's name? And if you don't know the name, make that your mission because you want, that, you want to make eye contact with our kids. Let them know you're glad they're here. Because part of our mission is to take the baton of faith and say, just going to pass it on. And it's not just through sit in a class, teach, 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 teach. It's life on life. Can you say amen to that? I think those were the amens from the parents. But I want to hear amens from those of you who don't have kids in the home anymore. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And the result was these churches gained converts. And it's not because they had a better argument. It's not because they served better coffee. It's not because they had a better band. These people gained Pagans were being converted and brought into the church because when these lonely, disconnected, unhappy, life-falling-apart people looked at the local church, now they didn't see perfect people, but they saw something good. They saw something beautiful in them, and they wanted to know what's going on here. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their numbers Day by day, those who were being saved. Let me, let me close with this final thought, because I have one activity I want you to do as a practical outworking of what I say this morning. Let me just say one final thought. Community in and of itself will not make you holy. And I just want you to hear that. So I'm glad you're here this morning, and I'm glad you've listened to my monologue but just being here is not going to make you holy. If you aren't committed to prayer and you are not committed to cultivating a relationship with Jesus Christ through the church, just being in the community in itself is not going to do it. Here's a gift, the gift of community, whether it's you're in a prayer group, which I hope you will join a group somehow in our church. I hope you will. I hope today would be the day when you kiss goodbye to, to this isolated kind of coming and going where, yeah, I'm a member, I come to First Perez, and as soon as it's over, boom, hit the door, hit your car, gone. I hope that you will slow down a bit and think about, am I serious about the development of my life in God? Well, the gift of a community, whether you're in a prayer group, a small group, a Bible study group, whether you're in a youth group or a nourish group, whether you're in a men's group, a women's group, the gift, here's the gift, here's the gift, is that they help us build a structure. And really, when you think about it, there's really no mystery to the spiritual life. There are these disciplines. There are these structures that we enter into. We take on a yoke, and it makes it easier for us to hear and respond to God's voice because we, by ourselves, we tell ourselves all kind of lies. We say, oh, well, I'll pray when I wake up, when I, when I come home in the evening. Oh, I'll pray the next morning. Oh, I'll read the Bible next time. And we just kind of keep kicking the can down there. When you're in a community and you're 
bonded together in that community, hopefully some of those practices are rubbing off on you. And then when we begin to wonder, W-A-N-D-E-R, when we begin to wander from the straight path, we begin to drift from the life of the community, hopefully others in the community will come after you and hold you accountable. I don't know any other way. There's no other way that God has designed for our, the care of our soul and our life together. And it's in the community of the church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And can you say amen? Amen.